Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. In the new year, we're back on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Kellen McPherson. And I'm David Moore. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first of all, Moses Nagel reports on the approval of the New York State Climate Action Plan. Then, Andrea Kuhnliff speaks with author Patrick W. Berry about his journal project, MEND, and his book, Doing Time, Writing Lives. Later on, Moses Nagel reports on the SUNY Artificial Intelligence Initiative. After that, Tom Francis brings us another poetry segment this week featuring, featuring Mojave. Finally, Hugh Johnson, the weatherman, joins us for a look back at the weather from the past year and the events in Buffalo, New York. But first, here are the headlines. The Grieving Families Act, which would overhaul and modernize the state's comp compensation policies in case of wrongful death, has yet to be signed by Governor Hochul, who is seeking changes from legislatures. The bill would give families and more time to sue and it would allow them to collect for emotional damages. The measures have garnered fierce opposition from insurance, business, and trade associations. The governor did sign a measure to conserve at least 30% of New York's land and water by 2030. The legislation to preserve New York's wildlife forests, and clean water sources is part of a similar national and international effort. The governor also signed a key environmental justice measure, the Cumulative Impacts Bill. When the, when the state is deciding whether or not to grant a permit for a polluting facility, it would now have to consider the existing pollution already taking place in that community. While state legislatures failed to pass many key bills, they, they did rush back in late December after the election to give themselves $32,000 pay raise. The part-time legislatures will pay themselves a base salary of $142,000, making them the highest paid state legislature in the country. Jason Schofield, Rensselaer County's Republican Elections Commissioner, abruptly resigned last week, hours after the Times Union published a story online reporting that he is scheduled to plead guilty to federal criminal charges in January in connection with an ongoing voter fraud investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice. Schofield had recently been reappointed by the county legislature even by most Democrats, despite his indictment. Peter Grimm and Cindy Doran were the only two legislatures to vote against his appointment. The Gazette reports that the city of Schenectady has, for the second time, extended its agreement with a nonprofit group that plans to renovate the former Carver Community Center in Hamilton Hill area, which has been closed since 2013. The deadline for the project, which has received $1.5 million in funding from the city, is now June 30th, 2024. The state of New York has recommended including the Central Lansingburg Historic District in the state and national registers of historic place, was among those receiving a nomination. 
The central Lansingburg Historic District occupies a long, shallow plateau terminated on the east by high bluffs and includes 65 blocks and portions of five others. Lansingburg has its roots to 1770. That's it for the headlines. For those just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. Now moving on to our first segment of the night and of the new year. For nearly three years, the New York State Climate Action Council has been working on a long-term plan to meet goals set out in the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. The scoping plan is meant to serve as an initial framework for how the state will reduce greenhouse gas emissions and achieve net zero emissions, increase renewable energy usage, and ensure climate justice. Moses Nago reports on the vote for approval of the plan, which took place at the end of last month. Resolution 6. Resolved that the members of the New York State Climate Action Council hereby approve the final scoping plan as presented at its December 19th, 2022 meeting. May I have a motion to approve the resolution? And do I have a second? Thank you. Given that our bylaws require an affirmative vote of at least 15 members of the council to approve this resolution, I will now ask Climate Action Council Secretary Valerie Milanovic to call each member by name to ask for your vote. When you hear name called, please signify that you either approve of the resolution by saying aye, or you disapprove by saying no. Co-Chair Harris. Aye. Co-Chair Sagos. Aye. Commissioner Ball. Aye. Chair Christian. Aye. Mario Salento. Aye. By a vote of 19 to three. The resolution is adopted. We have an approved scoping plan. On December 19th, the New York State Climate Action Council voted to approve a scoping plan to guide the state in meeting its goals of combating climate change. The plan contains recommendations for reducing carbon and climate impact in transportation, building, agriculture, electricity, waste, and more. Proponents claim that New York's plans are the most aggressive in the country. According to the scoping plan, a main goal is to achieve 70% renewable energy by 2030, 100% zero emission electricity by 2040, and net zero emissions statewide by 2050. After the vote, NYSERDA President and CEO Doreen M. Harris addressed the board. My vote is to enthusiastically approve this Climate Action Council final scoping plan. The plan as presented to the Council upholds three main principles of the work that we have advanced throughout this almost three-year process. Principle one, climate action. This plan demonstrates that climate action is not only necessary, but that delay is to be avoided. Delaying climate action has been shown to cost New Yorkers more. 
Therefore, I am in favor of undertaking this action now so we can begin delivering additional benefits to the New Yorkers we are acting on behalf of. As we implement our climate actions, certainly we will consider the on-the-ground issues and immediate costs and concerns of citizens and businesses. This is how we implement policy in the state of New York every day and will continue to do so. But our eye is on the prize and we in New York are wise to take climate action and have it serve as a model for the rest of the country. Principle two, climate justice. We have a plan that demonstrates how success can only be claimed when we have been able to advance and implement our climate action in a manner that addresses the issues of past decisions. Historically, underserved communities have not been included in the dialogue, and that must change. Underserved communities have also not had sufficient access to clean energy and housing, education, and career opportunities, and that must also change. This plan is demonstrating how all disciplines around this table, energy, environment, education, transportation, labor, health, housing, industry, agriculture, have responsibilities to make sure that justice is an equal outcome to the changes in our day in, day out business models. To put it simply, business as usual is no longer an option. I do agree with comments made at previous meetings that the economic opportunities we are looking to create through our climate planning have often been an unspoken undercurrent in this process. We simply do not succeed if our state economy is not better off for our activities in advancing this plan. I am beyond enthusiastic about the new industries and career opportunities that we are creating in New York. And as a product of upstate New York myself, I have never seen the level of opportunity that is at our doorstep in all parts of our state. DEC Commissioner and Co-Chair Basil Segos. The final scoping plan is big, it's bold, and it's visionary. It's the most comprehensive document for any state as it charts a path forward on addressing the climate crisis. It puts us on a path to net zero by 2050. This meets our greenhouse gas emission requirements and electrifies our state, reduces air pollution, creating healthier communities, and will literally save lives. It secures justice for communities that have borne the brunt of pollution for decades. It protects and expands jobs, including good paying union jobs, and puts New York in the forefront of this extraordinary clean energy economy that's booming around the country and around the world. This is a monumental achievement. You should all be proud. Of course, we know this, the climate crisis isn't going away. And while we can acknowledge the extraordinary challenges that we have in front of us, I did say, I think in the first meeting three years ago, that this would be the hardest thing that we ever undertook. And it wasn't the plan that would be hard. It was going to be the work that was going to be hard after the plan. But we have reason for optimism now. We have unique alignment in government, first time ever, federal, state, state of New York, Many other states through the U.S. Climate Alliance, 24 other states also taking actions, and of course at the local level, with hundreds of municipalities here in New York also wanting to step up and take action. We have technologies now that we didn't have 10, 15 years ago, five years ago. We have businesses, right, that are looking to plant flag in the ground and create jobs based on this economy, and they're doing so already. And of course the private investment behind that. We have a legally binding pathway now for disadvantaged communities. 
and that will help us address those disparities that these disadvantaged communities have felt for decades, if not generations. We have commitments to organized labor. We have organized labor now part of the Climate Action Council. And with all that, all that remains is, is our need to find the will to see this through, to fulfill the promises of the law, to fulfill the work that you all have been doing and take advantage of this incredible opportunity. So I don't say this lightly. I think this will, will be one of the most consequential actions that we have ever undertaken uh, as a state and certainly professionally that any of us has ever undertaken. So on behalf of my three girls, I thank you for your work. Mario Salento, president of the New York State AFL-CIO spoke. I appreciate the time and the effort it took to ensure that the needs and concerns uh, of, of working men and women were addressed in this document, and I feel they have. We've come a long way since May. I think, in my opinion, we've been able to add uh, substantial, uh, significant labor protections and standards, not only for the current workforce, but for generations to come, and I think that's really the key here. And I look forward to working going forward with the governor, working with both houses of the legislature, working with all of the agencies involved, uh, moving to ensure that the labor standards and protections that that we have in this document are, are enacted in statute and in regulation. And I look forward to meaningful engagement uh, to ensure that portions of this plan that can be enacted unilaterally prioritize working men and women and their unions. And I just want to say to everyone on this, on this council, I, I do thank you all for truly understanding and valuing the role uh, that working men and women will be playing in this process for years to come. The board heard from Donna D. Carolas of National Fuel and the president of the National Fuel Gas Distribution Corporation. I support many of the recommendations in the plan, but one is um, the adoption of more robust and uh, accelerated energy efficiency programs is, is sort of a first uh, no regrets way to reduce emissions. Also, the increased emphasis on the development of thermal energy networks by utilities and by others is a really important pathway for the future. And then, of course, the evaluation and consideration of the use of the natural gas distribution system to deliver renewable natural gas and hydrogen. And then especially the inclusion of a rigorously developed and very thorough gas transition framework, I think that was very good work. And I think that's going to really help guide um, the transformation going forward. Even with these positive inclusions, however, I do remain concerned that the scoping plan doesn't go far enough to ensure a responsible energy future for New York consumers. And through my uh, tenure on this council, from my perspective as the head of a, of a Western New York utility that serves communities with more than 1.6 million people, tens of thousands of businesses small and large, um, I have continued to strongly voice the need that the scoping plan fully consider the impacts on consumers for residential homeowners, for businesses, for industry. And I've tried to offer constructive perspectives and alternatives that will allow us to meet the requirements of the CLCPA while preserving reliability, energy system resiliency, and an affordable transition. The plan is not a free pass, and while some worry about its costs, others, including our own Mark Dunley, have questions about its effectiveness, saying, the reality is that this plan is actually a plan to make a plan. Hudson Mohawk Magazine will bring you much more coverage of the details and implications of this plan in the coming weeks. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. As Moses noted, Hudson Mohawk Magazine will bring you more coverage of the vote on the scoping plan. Moving to the second segment. Patrick W. Berry, Associative Professor, Writing Rhetoric, 
and Syracuse University speaks with Hudson Mohawk Magazine Andrea Cunliffe. Andrea talks with Patrick W. Berry about bringing higher education in correctional facilities and Patrick's new book, Doing Time, Writing Lives, Refiguring Literacy and Higher Education in Prisons, and his new project, M-E-N-D, or MEND, a journal that celebrates the lives and creative work of incarcerated, formerly incarcerated, and those impacted by the criminal justice system. It's Andrea Cudliffe here from the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, speaking with Patrick W. Berry. He's an associate professor of writing and rhetoric at Syracuse University. Hello, it's a pleasure to be with you today. How did writing become your life? Well, when I was um, working in magazine publishing, I took a detour, first beginning teaching for NYU's continuing ed program. But then while I was doing my master's work, I started teaching uh, students at Brooklyn College. And it was during that experience that I saw the real value of writing, not only skill-based components of it, but the ways in which writing and being expressive opens the door. It helps people find themselves. It's so much connected with identity. It was at that point that I began to think about what can writing really do? Or what can literacy really do? How does it work in different situations? And it was that interest that led me to a lot of the different studies I did, including teaching in prison. What brought you to that journey? It's a big commitment. Well, I think that there are two reasons. One of the things that I was really interested in is the power of education. What can literacy, what can writing really do? And I thought that going into prison would provide me with a really valuable way of seeing this in, in action. Exploring the power of literacy in a carceral setting. What can literacy or writing really do? But the second uh, reason is a much more personal one. It was something that I never shared with anyone. My uh, father and many family members on my father's side spent their lives in prison, oftentimes very much connected with addiction, with struggles, with poverty, addiction. But this was something that I kept a secret. You know, my father was in prison for most of his adult life, um, and uh, he ultimately was in prison for killing someone for a whole range of, of activities, all connected with alcohol. It was something that I never told anyone. It was something that I never thought about. But then while I was teaching in prison and working with this wonderful education program in Illinois, I began to hear the students talk about their own families, their relationships with their children. And I was so moved by this, and it really helped think more about my own connections, the way that family members and and the relationships they have with family members that are incarcerated. You know, that connection or that lack of connection that oftentimes happens is so powerful. It's so damaging. It's powerful and it's damaging. And I was thinking about the ways in which writing, the ways in which communication, the ways in which reflection can help people sort of make, make sense of their lives. Sometimes I would see students write about their relationships with their sons. They would write a letter to their son. Sometimes people would write letters to, to children, others, that, to young people out there telling them, please don't do the same things that I did. So I really saw the potential of writing to make a difference in people's lives. There was one quote that I was thinking of. I think it was Juan, someone you had, you had uh, taught, 
said, that's okay. Oh, is, is it about where he said, don't you know we're, we're going to have to be flipping burgers? Yeah, it says anybody who's able to obtain a higher education while incarcerated will testify that it does something to you. And then he said, despite barriers and despite fear, he continued to write with the hope of making a difference in his own life and in the world. Yes, that's really was like a very powerful moment because that was a student who realized the incredible obstacles that he would face when he was released from prison. He realized that he might very well have to take a job where he would be flipping burgers. Yet he saw something incredibly valuable in the prison program that helped him see himself differently and see his place in the world differently. And I think that's like something that doesn't usually get discussed when we talk about higher education in prison. Oftentimes the focus is on what they call reduced recidivism, measuring whether or not the person will come back to prison. You know, as we know, many people after they're released, they return back to prison. So there's a great interest in finding programs, education initiatives that help people so that they don't come back to prison. So that, of course, is a noble goal. But when the focus is exclusively on that, we lose the really rich potential that comes from just writing a reflected piece in the classroom, writing a letter to one's son, or writing to each other or talking to a fellow person who's incarcerated about their work. And it's that sense of community that sense of paying attention to what I call the contextual now, this sense of living in the moment, being present, not thinking about the future, solely about the future, or overdwelling on the past, but really trying to be mindful of where you are and appreciating education and learning in the moment. As a professor at Syracuse University, this is so important for education broadly. You know, we have students, you have people, they're going to college and they're thinking about what am I going to do afterwards? You know, what, what will the economy look like? And that anxiety is real, but it can sometimes undermine the potential of just appreciating the art, of just learning for the sake of learning. And, and that's the type of experience that I think is important for all students, but for incarcerated students, formerly incarcerated students all of us at any age level, just being able to sort of appreciate learning and an investment in learning in the present moment. The arts play a huge part in rehabilitation and writing, of course, is an art. How long have you been working with people who are incarcerated? I started it in maybe 2008. I've worked in a lot of different capacities, um, working for a community college, teaching for a, a higher education program in Illinois, um, and at Syracuse, we actually have undergraduate students who, for a while, were tutoring um, at the Auburn Correctional Center. And, you know, more, more recently, I, I'm beginning a new project. It's, it's one that's focused on supporting formerly incarcerated people and their families. MEND. The MEND Journal? Yeah, it's, it's a project that has two components. One is a project that's really geared for us in upstate New York. And it's a project that is focused on providing formerly incarcerated people and family members. And I, I want to emphasize family members because the, the impact that mass incarceration has on family members, has on children. So this program is ultimately a publishing workshop. It's designed to bring together formerly incarcerated people, family members, 
to come together and learn the skills on how to produce a publication from start to finish. So students will come in, some of the sessions will be held at Syracuse University. And I should say this is in the pilot stage right now as we're applying for funding, but one will be providing practical skills. And this is a program where applicants are receive a stipend for participating in the program. And they end up learning both creative arts, they engage with the humanities, but they learn practical skills. They learn experiences that they can put on a resume. It's just something that is a way, a small way of giving back. And what I'm hoping is that it's going to build a community locally that will ultimately bring together people who have an appreciation for the arts, for writing, and just for ultimately supporting each other. So that's kind of one dimension. The other dimension is this national publication called MEND. And MEND is going to be a publication that's going to be open to anyone who's been impacted by the criminal justice system. So MEND, the journal, will recruit submissions from incarcerated people, formerly incarcerated people, and family members. Anyone can submit their piece. And all they would need to do is send it to me, and it'll be considered for the 2023 issue. You know, when I see these stories, I, I realize the incredible obstacles. And I'm hoping that the journal will provide an opportunity for people to express themselves in any way they choose. You know, so sometimes when we see prison publications, there's a tendency to want the publication to focus strictly on prison-related material. How bad the experiences were in prison, the obstacles they encountered, the crimes they committed. And this will certainly welcome those experiences. Those are important experiences. But I want to encourage people who want to share work that has nothing to do with prison. Maybe they want to write about reflections of a family member. Maybe they want to write about themselves in a way that doesn't have to do with that part of their lives where they were incarcerated. And I think that's so important to be able to have more of an open space for reflection. And one thing I didn't mention before was that I'm also... Um, encouraging submissions of art as well. So there are many ways that people can express themselves. And so I'm hoping that we'll get really a rich collection of material. And then I'll be working with this pilot group of editors to uh, assemble the 2023 issue. So that's kind of the, the big goal. Sending submissions to men is due by March the 1st. This has been Andrea Kanla for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You can help Patrick Berry, associate professor writing and rhetoric at Syracuse University, expand his project MEND by submitting uh, writing opportunities and expressions of life in prison or life with those who have been in prison and finding that they have great creativity and, and expansive uh, experience to share and grow and submissions for the men's journal are due by March 1st, 2023. More info on how you submit a piece to the men project, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. For those just tuning in, I'm Kellen McPherson. And I'm David Moore. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk magazine on the Hudson Mohawk radio network on WWOC LP 105.3 FM Troy, WWOOG LP 
92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. The current New York State budget restores some of the money that has been cut from the state university system in the last decade. Each university is choosing how to use these funds, but at SUNY Albany, the provost is putting the majority into bringing 27, hiring 27 faculty members for a new initiative focusing on studying artificial intelligence and computing. Proponents hope that emphasizing this cutting edge field will attract new students to Albany, but will this come at the expense of existing programs? Aaron Major is an associate professor of sociology and president of the campus chapter chapter of UUP, the union that represents all the academics and most of the professional support staff at the University of Albany. He explains some of the ramifications to Moses Nagel. Kathy Hochul, for the first time in years, put money into SUNY specifically for the hiring of tenure-line faculty. And that was, of course, very, very welcome news, right? So this was money dedicated in the state budget to hire faculty across the SUNY system. And campuses were kind of left to figure out what to do with that. There was some formula for distributing how much money they got and how many lines that would mean. But campuses basically came up with these plans for how they were going to do it. My understanding is that most of the smaller SUNY campuses basically just used the money to fill areas where they had holes, like, you know, they had to build a hire in some departments or had had a bunch of retirements or something like that. But the four big research campuses, Albany, Stony Brook, Buffalo, and Binghamton, they were supposed to also hire faculty in what were kind of generically called like high needs or high impact areas. But every campus kind of did a different thing. And so our campus put all of its eggs into this AI initiative. This was something that was launched basically by the provost office in conjunction with our new vice president for research and development. He himself comes from an AI background. And again, part of the weeds of this is that he had also helped secure additional state funding to finally pay for the renovations of the old Albany High School, which is supposed to be the new campus home of our college for computer engineering and applied sciences. So he secured this funding to both renovate the building, but also to buy essentially a giant supercomputing cluster. And then what the provost office did was partner that with a bunch of hiring and what's been called the AI initiative. The reason I think the background is relevant is because even though this all seems very like new and sudden, it's really the continuation of not just some very specific like where money was spent on, but, but a kind of a, a paradigm that says that 
the way that you fund and support your SUNY campuses is to spend a lot of money on some big, high-profile areas on the assumption that that's going to draw in a bunch of students and that those students' tuition dollars will then fund the campus. This starts to lead me to where I've got some concerns with this, concerns that we've raised to the union, concerns that other faculty have raised as well. So one concern, of course, is that all of the hiring, and it's something like 27 new faculty lines, which we, we have not done much faculty hiring at all in years because of persistent budget shortfalls. So this is a, a lot of faculty hiring in a short amount of time, well above the pace that we've had for years. But it's all concentrated in this area. Um, and a lot of them are going to be in, like, math and computer science. There's a few that are going to be in, like, adjacent fields. You know, the campus talks about this being a kind of, like, a broad initiative that's going to bring in folks from the arts and humanities and all these disciplines. There's one faculty line across the entire arts and humanities. Right? They're going to hire a philosopher of artificial intelligence or ethics and AI or something like that. Um, so it's, it's mm. mostly concentrated in a few STEM fields. But most of our programs have either lost or have certainly not gained faculty in the last five years, um, mostly through retirements and people just leaving, but those lines have never, never been replaced. So we have a lot of programs that have faculty shortages. Some of those programs are down on student enrollment, although it kind of depends on how you measure it. But this has been one concern. A lot of departments that would like to see investments in their programs that aren't going to get them from this. Like you were said, there's been budget shortfalls for years, and this is the time when there's suddenly right. investment to be made. That's right. And I think I and other people, when we saw this news from the governor's office, I mean, to be clear, we knew that the money that was being talked about was not going to be enough to make up for the years of budget shortfall, the number of positions that have been lost. There was no illusion about that. But I think there was some hope that it meant that we would see some investment, broadly speaking. Right? I don't think anyone's really saying, I'm certainly not saying that what you do is you just like, you know, hire one person in 27 different departments or something like that. Um, but some breadth, right? Some recognition that we offer a wide variety of programs and we serve an incredibly diverse student body, not just diverse in terms of their demographics, but diverse in their interests, right? And mm -hmm. so some students <laughs> will see the programs that they major in and the program field that they go into, they're going to have a lot of money put into them, but a lot of students won't. I can't imagine how you aspire to be uh, a world-class university that is on the scale that ours is that only has like four or five, you know, like strong programs, right? Like, of course, other universities have things that they're known for and things that they're famous for, but they also have lots of other strong programs. That's what makes really great universities. That brings up the specifics of AI, which I feel like everybody's aware of the term, but a huge amount of it, it seems like it's just vapor and hype and, I don't. Do you have any thoughts about that part of it? I don't know enough about it to say that there wouldn't be space for like good academic researchers to come in and be doing interesting research, teaching interesting classes to students on machine learning and, and whatever else. And I, I honestly just don't 
but that's the thing. I don't really have a good sense of what it is that they are imagining this will be in terms of a curriculum, what kinds of what majors or programs will come out of this. Mm. So the other question I have is just so much of this stems from the university being reliant on tuition dollars. And I mean, we've heard a lot about student loan debt and then a lot of negative stuff about that. Is there any discussion anywhere saying that this isn't the best model for funding a state university? It's certainly been the discussion and the argument that's consistently been made through the union, not just our chapter, but through UUP statewide. It's been strong and consistent advocates for putting public dollars back into the system. I mean, even with the important and significant increases in SUNY aid that came out of the state budget last year, and and it should be said, I mean, the, the governor was quite good on this. But even all that money is something like a third of what's been pulled out of the system in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Even if the amount of funding that the state had provided SUNY had just stayed flat where it was in 2008, that's like $3 billion more than what we have now coming in state aid. And so that's the work that, that really needs to be done. As a New York State resident, as a parent of a student or wherever you are, what do you think you should be asking for? I think, you know, and this is an important time to ask because we're coming into budget season again. It's still the case that relatively small numbers of kids compared to the numbers who graduate high school, you know, go on to finish four-year college degrees. The numbers of kids who go on to finish four-year college degrees, particularly kids who are poor or kids who are black or brown, is even smaller. Dumping a bunch of money into kind of trendy or of the moment, like high-tech fields, that's not going to push that needle. If what we're talking about when we're really talking about bringing students into campus, you know, if we can stop instrumentalizing them as just like sources of cash and think of it as educating students, then the question is, how do we ensure that we make good quality higher education available to those kids who, for right now, it's still out of reach or not possible, either because it's still too expensive or because they need extra resources when they get to campus to help them transition and graduate on time. So you've got to put money back into the system, but you've got to put it into these things that just like aren't visible and aren't flashy and you're not really going to be able to stand up in front of a new building and cut a ribbon or something like that, like mentorship and tutoring, but that takes people and it takes resources. I mean, this is the other, you know, issue with the AI initiative they're talking about building a brand new program, no talk about where's all the support staff coming for this. So putting money back into the system and making sure that it goes to these just foundational bedrock functions that we need to perform. Um, and some that we don't perform. Like again, like providing enough support for kids who come in with a lot of need from disadvantaged backgrounds who need that extra support. That's what we should be asking for. That's what the campus is here to serve. For those who are interested uh, on this initiative, more info can be found at albany.edu. Tom Francis talks observations, underserved neighborhoods, and poetry changing the world with Mojave. 
But first, we start with Mojave performing his piece, Around My Block, at Poets Realm Slam in Bridgeport, Connecticut, on July 11th, 2012. Mojave has been one of the most visible and active poets, hosts, and organizers in the area for decades. He began writing at a very early age and over the years has worked tirelessly to bring poetry and spoken word to venues all over the country. Mojave was one of the many local poets who got their start at the QE2 open mics and quickly was able to build his own community of artists and writers in the capital region. In 2011, he was one of the original organizers of the Nitty Gritty Slam series and coached the very first team from Albany to go to the National Poetry Slam in 2012. In our conversation, we talk about not giving up on your dreams, how addiction changed neighborhoods in the 80s and 90s, and if poetry can still change the world. But first, we start off with Mojave performing his piece, Around My Block, at the Poets Realm Slam in Bridgeport, Connecticut, on July 11th, 2012. Tell me if this sounds like someplace you might have heard. Around My Block? Cars go by with booming systems at 1, 2, 3 o'clock. Hip hop in the morning, breaking dawn as well as sleep, because the walls vibrate with the news mixtape. <laughs> and sleep is what you can't do. And around my block, I see my man's little sister's Raquana, and she's got curves, and she's round. About nine months round. And she only 14. Does Mr. Johnson know? I don't think so. See, she a church lady. She pray every day. She got service on Sunday, Monday, inspirational Thursday, celebration Friday, Bible study. So that's Saturday, soup kitchen, kicking fried chicken for collard greens after Sunday. Service. Can I make some palm nuggets? I don't know. But I gave her more time alone, so that little fast ass bone 30 little Jay, who don't claim her anyway. And around my block, crackhead stroll with mad merchandise, and I call my iPod for a crazy cheap price. Now, my brother got this double ordinary stereo tape deck with the graphic equalizer, the full control automotive stereo that can make you holler for $50. And that's after we talk now for 75 Kids play two-hand push on me, touch football on the street, cursing at every car that they meet that breaks up the game. Counting seven Mississippi's been rushed. Still doing the all-star play such as the Statue of Liberty, the original free flicker you think they ain't, so they make it past the number two telephone pole with orange paint. While Mr. Johnson cusses at every little nigga that rings his doorbell, knowing he can't chase him, because two houses up, Crazy Mike, he high, he beats on Lisa, and she always comes out and says, I had an accident. You might help me. Help you what? Two fat black eyes that you can cry when other people are asleep. Because there's always some secret that you keep. Now around my block, the people don't speak unless they need something. Not like a cup of sugar, but better five or ten dollars. And when you ask them when, they say, yo, son, I'll meet you up on the first. You'll check me out on the 16th. My check is in the mail tomorrow. Yo, son, I got you. And you're in the world of sorrow because they forget it's the next time. And when you go to the corner store, I'll be trying to run slang while charging 50 cents for a dollar so and say, keep it still. I make no money. But he got the nerve to charge you five dollars for an eight ounce can of formula. Now he Muslim, but saw the can of case of 40 cricket to shorties with the cash when he sick off the liquor, but he got them bomb island beef patties with the 245 year old specials with the 25 cent chips. And he bought the Abbey Honey dip that run up in the store. But around my block in the summer, it's hot and beautiful because brothers be chilling, you know, grandmothers be doing baby girl hair, waiting for Mr. William come over the fire hydrant for cool mates miles because ain't no pools for miles. And we be sucking ghetto dreams from 10 cent ices and Fujo's ice creams. Kids be riding blocks and girls be taking hikes throughout the block with their jean shorts, the 54 levels and the halter tops and the one piece of a striped dresses with the one cut and I was rocking extension. And did I mention, there's never any gunshots till it gets about 100 degrees interrupted by freeze, as you fit the description. But around my block, 
the sweet from the sounds we brought the speakers pushed up into radios and mad flows of R&B like mazes. Before I let go, my bald heads and reds play no woman no cries. They pass by around my block. No, around my block, um, around uh, Livingston, like uh, from North Manning Boulevard to Livingston, pretty much was my my growing up. It was my footprint. You know, um, my my father lived at thirty five North Manning. My mother lived at four seventy five, um, or four fifty five at that time, uh, Livingston Avenue, and so. In between there, I would be able to play at Third Street Park, which is where a lot of interactions took place. And so when you're in that type of landscape, you get to see all the stuff that is happening as you're moving. So throughout my years of growing up through high school, all the way into college, I got to see the neighborhood um, go from a really tight-knit community to watching how crack and drugs started to affect it. And so um, around my block was basically me giving my, giving my standard observation of what I saw, but also giving the love of what I've seen um, happening at the same time. So, you know, the people, you know, the characters were all people that I actually knew, but they actually were, you know, transformed into something else while I was doing the piece. You know, what you call it? So cars go by with boom systems. One, two, three, hip hop in the morning, breaking dawn as well as sleep. You know, because people would drive around the neighborhoods, you know, with the booming system playing it. And you'd be like, yo, it's like three o'clock in the morning. What the hell is wrong with you? But, you know, of course, we need to let people know how dope our system is and how everything else, because it's my way of trying to figure out what my importance is by letting you know what kind of system I got a dope car and all this other stuff. But I got it by ill gotten means. Reward me you know, the opposite things that attract. So in that poem, those are the things I speak about. When Mojave was in 10th grade, he started seeing changes in his neighborhood. Like, I didn't really see people on crack until 10th grade. There was a lot of addictive people that were running around that were infirmed by their addictions. At that time, there was more than I could count, you know, because literally the wave of, of crack cocaine took you know, uh, uh, arrested a hold of that community, seriously. And, you know, and, and everything changed. That's when people started to, you know, things became more violent. I can remember a time where I could literally, like, just walk and feel unmaligned, like you just walk anywhere you wanted to walk to. I asked Mojave if he thought if the crack epidemic of the time was treated as a mental health or addiction issue, would things have been different? Well, number one, there's, there's, there's a few things that are going on, right? Um, Number one, we, we never perceive addiction as a disease. We're like only doing it now. That's because the addiction, when it was in impoverished communities, Black and Latino communities to be exact, it really wasn't so much of a problem. You know, things were, Rockefeller drug laws, all these different things were put in place to ensure which wasn't addressed as an addiction or, or a byproduct of poverty. It was, you know, how can I use this as something to build up my, you know, uh, communities in upper states to create income on the backs of people who are arrested for, you know, carrying some some weed and maybe the smallest amounts of uh, crack cocaine that's possible. But in the meantime, in between time, the the idea of poverty wasn't addressed. Why people would take chances to sell something, 
to get that. And the funny thing is like, when you look at it at any rate, the people who were, who were selling and using, they all became part of a system that basically helped to build up um, the economic advancement of, of rural communities that had jails and things of that sort. And um, that's why it's like, you know, crazy that now that, you know, even New York State is getting into uh, marijuana and things of that sort, that all those uh, all those uh, convictions have to be vacated because they arrested people for all of these different things that were happening. And it wasn't addressed in that sense of saying this is a byproduct. It was looked at primarily as a, as a problem for people of color. And this is why they're pathological. And this is the reason why they're doing this. Instead of looking out, these things were actually created to do everything. And now the weird thing is like, you got all this stuff happening. You address it as a problem. Now you're gentrifying the same neighborhoods. It's it's a serious problem. And it wasn't addressed and it still isn't addressed in the way that it was. It only became a problem when people started using, you know, Xanax and getting, a, getting prescription drugs and doing all this different stuff where it really started reaching its tendrils into the upper crust, if you will, in order for it to happen. So, you know, now it's like you're seeing it as like some people will use certain things and self-medicate because they do not have access to the same amount of things that other people do. As I've asked many poets over the years, can poetry still be used as a tool for social change? At any social change, at the beginning of it, always a poet, you know, taking all of the energy, putting it, you know, becoming a griot, speaking it all into one thing. And then speaking forth and, and everybody, you know, comes and, and listens to it. And um, poetry incites the mind in many different ways. Mojave is the founder of Urban Guerrilla Theater, the Love and Erotic Poetry Weekend, Erotica Slam, a nationwide network of erotic poets, writers, authors, black erotic creatives, and people who love erotica, the Honey Dripper Poetry Collective, and much more. As a podcaster, he hosts the Hidden Radio Show, War Council, the Honey Dripper Erotic Poetry Podcast, and the Fly Speak Open Mic. You can find out even more about him and all of his projects on Facebook and Instagram. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. For those interested in poetry, tune back in in this time next week for another conversation with a poet by Tom Francis. Find more Talking with Poets segments on our website, mediasanctuary.org We have with us now uh, Hugh with the weather report. Happy New Year, Hugh. This is David Moore, co-host, and I've just returned from visiting family in Buffalo, New York. They live just north of the Buffalo border, and the storm was, the storm effects of snow wasn't so significant, but wind was for several days. What was so peculiar and significant about this storm? Well, hi, Dave, and Happy New Year to you. Yeah, this is Hugh, Hugh Johnson. Um, well, what probably made this storm so deadly were a couple of things. One was the ferocious wind uh, accompanying it. It wasn't just for an hour. It was for several hours, or actually many hours, wind gusting storm force winds over 60 miles an hour and even approaching hurricane force wind gusts at the same time that snow was falling at several inches an hour. So you put those two things together and you have a disastrous situation. You had Christmas, you had a Christmas weekend coming into play and this thing went on for several days. Um, It was very well forecasted. That was the good news. But even so, 
things happen that probably should have happened, like 40 deaths. Um, we were talking about my wife and I at, at dinner, and that they, they really didn't close the roads until, until they saw the white of, of its eyes. And that was a problem because it came in pretty fast and furious, and the cold front came through, temperatures tumbled. But it was basically the strong winds, the, the heavy snow, 51 inches at the uh, Buffalo Airport, making it an epic event. One thing I learned when I was out there was, is that there was a midnight shift that needed to get home. And that was one of the reasons for the delay in the road closings. Is that an appropriate response? See, I, I think they should have uh, worked around that. Um, the, the, I, I don't know if we were talking about specifically the weather service, but when I left, I, I've been retired for over six years now, but they had this thing called shelter in place. We start using it the last year or two. I was there when weather conditions look dangerous enough. We actually, we never actually implemented it, but basically the weather people were basically encouraged, if not, they couldn't be forced to, but encouraged to stay in the office and not go home even when their shift was over. And, you know, I think, I really think they, they should have been more thinking about that kind of thing in, in places like police or places where there's people working overnight, even nursing. I know some, I know some nurses and doctors got stuck at hospitals for days, but you know, it's like, these are the kind of things that, okay, I'll give you one example real quickly. We had a storm about 10 years ago on Valentine's day, and we all knew it was going to snow really heavily at night. The guy left our office down in, um, in Gilderland and went up to, uh, to uh, Wilton and he woke up the next morning and he couldn't get in. And, I didn't understand why he left knowing that it was going to be two inches an hour. It's like, it's one thing to forecast it, but it's quite another to experience it. You don't really get the whole grasp until you're actually in it. But with the whole point of, you know, trying to get that message is not to be in that. It's really not to be in that kind of, especially when there's winds blowing in hurricane force. It's bad enough when it's snowing heavily, but when you get the wind involved too, it's, it's impossible. So I wish they had done a better plan with that. That's all. That's a helpful consideration and observation. Hugh, since we haven't heard from you in a few weeks, David, uh, why don't you recap 2022? And David, I have a quick question, if you don't mind. So I'm wondering, Hugh, what is the relationship between the National Weather Service and these meteorologists with the local officials, the police, when these storms happen? This is Kaylin, by the way. Hi, Kaylin. Well, it's a very, very good question. And, and, that's all part of um, uh, decision support services, DSS, and that was a big thing when I left. That was there was starting to be a better merger because you know before weather service did their thing, police did their thing, EMS did their thing, but the twain never quite connected, and and that was the whole goal. The weather service still is now is to really integrate everyone together so we're on the exact same page, and that. It's still something that's a, it's still a gem in the rough uh, because it still hasn't been totally smooth. I mean, you know, basically you want to have everyone on the same board. If snow's going to start at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, the roads are going to be impossible to shut down. But I don't think it quite worked. I mean, this storm, again, was well forecast. There's nothing wrong with the forecast. Uh, but it's just that getting that communication, that the, the call to action, we used to call it, is still something that needs to be done because – I mean, 40 people's lives were lost, so that's never a good thing to lose any life, especially 40. So um, I, I think there's still work to be done, but this is, this, this is what they're trying to do, and, and they've been doing this since I've retired, even before. 
to try to completely get everybody together on the same page. That does sound important, and, and it's a good job for the National Weather Service. And we haven't heard from you since 2022, so could you give us a little recap of the 2022 weather? What was interesting? What were the highlights? It, actually, it's an interesting year because there, were, there weren't any, like, we didn't have any Irene's or, or really disastrous things. We did have a, a pretty good flood in April that actually flooded uh, a, a moderate flood, the, the worst flooding of the river flooding of the year. Um, I would say the sleep bomb of February was probably our, our our biggest nemesis. Fortunately, no lives were lost, but it was really a pain in the ass to get the get the sleet off the. Uh, if you remember, we were we took over a week to remove that two inches of sleet that fell across the area to get it off the, the sidewalks and so forth. Uh, snow blowers were useless, so it wasn't a tragic situation, just a frustrating. There was a tornado or two not in the Meade Albany area, but south of here. And I think there was one in Vermont, too. But I really think the legacy, the sleep bomb, might have been the most imp- impressive thing of the year. We did have some severe thunderstorms, but, again, not like a big duration like we had the year before, a couple of years before. So that would be my take. Now, of course, we had Ian down in Florida. That was a horrible uh, – you know, that, that was one of the most deadly and, and costly things in a while. So – but. Here in the immediate capital region, we had you know drought during the summer. That was probably another big one. That was the biggest drought we've had hey, in Hugh, quite Hugh. a few years. Hugh, yeah. we're going to have to cut yeah. it there. In 30 seconds, can you give us okay. a look ahead for the week? Uh, unsettled. Uh, we're going to have a series of storms bringing rain, cold rain, hopefully no ice. And, and that's going to take a while to clear out because the upper levels of part of the storm gets out. It doesn't get out here towards the weekend. And temperatures returning to seasonable levels. Uh, so it won't be really cold or warm, and we will have some rainy weather and, and, and for the rest of the week. So it's not going to be a real pleasant week, but it could be worse. No blizzards. <laughs> Thank you, here for ta- Hugh, for talking with us this week. All right, you got it. And that was Hugh Johnson, retired weatherman again. And I'm, that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, the first of the year. I'm Kalen McPherson. And I'm David Moore. Our engineer is Sina Bazilla Hickey. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley for headlines, Moses Nagel, Andrea Kuhnleaf, Tom Francis, and Hugh Johnson. Our two co-hosts and David Moore, David Moore and Kaylin McPherson, thank you for joining us for this program. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. We appreciate you listening. Happy New Year. Just remember that radio isn't dying, but it is growing. Until next time.